blessed Lord, as we look at your word again this afternoon, let it remind us of the strength we have in you. Let it be a reminder of who's in charge and the fate of the wicked. Lord, let this word this afternoon remind us of our safety and our security, where it belongs, Lord, who has it, and why we can trust in you, Lord, and not be moved. Take this word this afternoon and strengthen us. Make us sturdy and strong Christians, Lord, especially in our unsettling days. We pray all of this in Christ's name, amen. All right, Psalm 11. In the Lord I will put my trust. How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? For look, the wicked bend their bow. They make ready their arrow on the string that they may shoot secretly at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, What can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous, but the wicked and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. Upon the wicked, he rains coals, fire and brimstone and a burning wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous, and he loves righteousness. His countenance beholds the upright. And thus ends the reading of God's precious word. Brothers and sisters, the psalm that you just heard is a psalm that will help instruct us in how to address a fearful world. How a Christian should respond when those around him or her respond in fear to the culture. It's a psalm that addresses retreatism. It's opposed to it something that we're probably all very tempted to do is buy a spot of land in the middle of nowhere, move out on it and forget the world around you. But that's not what this psalm suggests. We do. And so I think it's timely. I think it's important. And I think we should consider the counsel of God's divine word. And I will even, even reveal my own heart and mind. I've tempted to do many of those things myself. And I think that's what makes the psalm so important is it's addressing, addressing the common temptations that we all share and face when things around us are just being destroyed when we see, as the text says in verse three, if the foundations are destroyed. That is, if if these righteous foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And more often than not, 
on all of these chat rooms and lunchroom conversations and whenever else they may happen, the answer to that is just escape, retreat. Let the dead bury the dead, so to speak. Let them deal with it. And so the psalm is pertinent. The psalm will certainly be challenging, convicting, but I think the psalm does answer a very important question that we all face every day. What are we to do when the things around us that had stabilized society in so many ways begins to crumble? I've titled this psalm, and again, I'll help or leave the perfection of the title to the one uh, putting it online, but it is a Christian's response to fear, a Christian's response to fear. Now, we're going to look at the psalm in its parts. There's not very many. It's a very short psalm, but it's not a psalm that really tells us anything new per se, but it's a psalm that sort of puts things together. And I think it's a psalm that has a historical context to it, but we've already heard, if you look there at even at at Psalm 7, if you look there at verse 1, we see in this psalm of David another confession of trust. Oh Lord, my God, in you I put my trust. Save me from all those who persecute me and deliver me, lest they tear me like a lion, rending me in pieces while there is none to deliver. So it's really nothing new, but I think the context and I think the way the psalm presents itself in its parts are, well, pertinent and I think educational for us. It's good counsel. The four parts that I have... um, or at least three parts I'm breaking it down to, is first of all, it's going to be a Christian's confidence. A Christian's confidence. Secondly, a plea for escape, that is the counsel from friends, retreat. And then there's going to be a list of reasons that David gives why he will not heed that counsel. So there are three parts. Let's look at the first one. Notice how the psalm opens up. Our begins, in the Lord, I will put my trust. David begins the psalm with a confession. He's testifying. He opens the psalm given testimony that his trust is in the Lord. It's in Jehovah. And that Even to us, beloved, even though the second half of verse one, he begins going, it goes into the counsel that his friends are given to him or his counselors. He was, you know, a royal figure given to him. He begins the psalm by opening up and exclaiming, confessing that his trust is in the Lord. Guess what? It's not in the counselors. It's not in his advisors. It's clear from the psalm that David doesn't trust the counsel of his advisors. He doesn't believe that it is wise counsel. 
And every king had men around him that they considered to be very wise people that would advise him on on, on matters of of politics and military and whatnot, uh, uh, international commerce, trade. And yet here, David is saying, I do not put my trust in their counsel, but my trust is in the Lord. Now, there's another aspect of this that struck me as I read the psalm, as I considered, how would I open this up? How would I counsel someone from this psalm? And it comes from Habakkuk. Turn to the minor prophet Habakkuk. It's going to probably be in those white pages. The ones that don't get handled very much. When you find Habakkuk, I want to read to you how this sentiment is is revealed in the prophet Habakkuk. Now, let me give you a little backstory on Habakkuk if you've forgotten. Habakkuk is a prophet and God is revealing to Habakkuk what he's about to do with Judah. Judah has spent a long time, a long time period in rebellion against God. And God, uh, to speak in human terms, he's had enough. It's his, his patience is filled up. And so now God is going to send a chastiser to Judah. This chastiser was a, a beast of beasts. His name was Nebuchadnezzar, and he was a fierce general and warrior, um, merciless in his military campaigns. There's imageries here of, of brutality. They would, when they were dragging some of their captives off that they had captured in war, they would literally take cords and and have implements of hooks and hook them in their face and pull them behind the horses. That ensured they kept up. It's brutal. I, I, just the thought of it makes all of us cringe. Yet he was, a, he, was, he, he was a very brutal person. And God says to Habakkuk, here's the one that I'm sending you. Habakkuk's appalled. He's like, Lord, why would you do that? Why would you send this person to chasten your people? And, and you come down to verse or chapter two. Let's read it in context. He's going back and forth with the Lord. And he says, I will stand my watch and set myself on the rampart and watch to see what he, that is God, will say to me and what I will answer when I am corrected. And then the Lord answered me and said, write the vision and make it plain on tablets that he may run who reads it. For the vision is set for an appointed time, but at the end it will speak and it will not lie. Though it tarries, wait for it because it will come true. It will not tarry. Behold the proud. His soul is not not upright in him, but the just shall live 
by his faith. Now, just to explain this, Habakkuk says, okay, I've responded to the Lord's vision. I sit back. I patiently wait for his response. The Lord responds. And the Lord basically tells Habakkuk, write this vision on a tablet. Write it on a sign. Post it so that it is legible and readable. Even if someone runs by it, they can see it and they can read it. That's how clear I want you to make it. And what's this going to say? What the Lord has promised to come about will come about. Don't think. Though some time may pass. Oh, we were afraid that Nebuchadnezzar was going to come in and take us. Doesn't look like anything's going to happen. He said, no, 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 wait for it. Wait for it because it's coming. Basically, what I've promised is going to happen is going to happen. And he says, well, what are the righteous to do? What are the righteous to do when the ungodly are allowed in God's sovereignty to take over? Live by faith. You live by your faith. You live trusting God. You live trusting God that he is using this man as a, well, a paddle. You know what a paddle is or a belt? A switch? Some of y'all know what a switch is? Maybe not. Maybe The Lord is going to send Nebuchadnezzar in to Judah as his whip. And he is going to chasten his people. But what are you to do? Be chastened. Live by faith. Some of you are going to be hauled off to Babylon. What are you to do in Babylon? Live by faith in a foreign land. Don't worship their gods. Don't succumb to their religious customs. Maintain your integrity of religion, of your faith, and live as a follower of God, Jehovah, in a foreign land. If you stay in Israel and you're not able to buy groceries, if the grocery store shelves are empty and the banks are low on cash and money and you're not able to get your paycheck every week, what are you going to do? You're going to live by faith. You're going to live trusting God that even though you have little, it will go far. Even though you only have 10 gallons of gas, it will be all you need for that week. You are going to live as one trusting in the sovereignty of God to take care of you. Now, we're going to answer. We're going to fill in why we can do that in the psalm. But this is where we are. This is what we're to do. This is not a new question. This is not a new problem. What we are facing is not a new problem. It is not something new in history that a once godly, religiously fertile land has apostatized from God. That's not new. That is not new. So the things that that nation goes through is not new. And how God's people who trust in him are to live in the midst of that society is not new. And in this sense, beloved, you and I must travel the well-worn paths of the righteous. 
except this path, the season of this path is a season of difficulty and trial and temptation. And as the text says in in Psalm 11, testing, testing. So we see in the first half of verse one, a declaration of confidence. The Lord, in the Lord, I have put my trust. And that should be ours too. Secondly, let's look at this, what we could call cowardly counsel, ungodly counsel, um, counsel that is unbecoming of one who does trust in the Lord, counsel that is um, the fruit of fear and rather than faith. And notice the counsel. And this is what David says, how can you say to me, my soul, how can you say to me? That is, I think the word soul is interjected there as it is down in verse five. It's interjected there for emphasis. The appeal, I'm a, the appeal of this counsel. This, this is not just simply advice. This is not water cooler advice. You know, the talking around just in, in what you might call small talk. How can you say to my soul? That is, this is, earn, this is coming from his counselors. This is what you must do to spare your life. You're the king of Israel. You must do this in order to preserve your royalty. You must, as God's king, flee to the mountains. So this council is not just water cooler talk. This council is coming from the counselors that is setting before David a reason or a, a, a counsel to flee the situation so that his life may be spared. And they go on to say this, flee as a bird to your mountain. Go to your safe space. Go to your hiding place. I think there's more than likely he's talking about those caves that people fled to to hide themselves in that they couldn't find them. I mean, it was just these 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 caves and tunnels went all over the place and it was just hard to find somebody that went there. And I think they're saying, David, go there. Go to this safe place. Hide yourself there. For look, and now they give him the reason. Why do they want David to do this? They say, well, look, the wicked bend their bow and they make ready their arrows. So obviously there's been some power shift. There's danger involved. It's life-threatening. There's people in power that will take your life. They make their bow and their arrow ready that they may shoot secretly at the upright in heart. David, you're the target. Then verse 3, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Meaning, David, what, 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 are, what can you do about this? They are stronger than you are. And it seems like a good case. <laughs> Does it not? 
Look at the case. Go to where you're protected. Why? Because the people that seek you are dangerous, they mean business, and they have the power to accomplish what they seek, your life. And then thirdly, the foundations are destroyed. What are you going to do? You don't have the things that you relied upon aren't there. They're destroyed. These foundations are destroyed. Remember last week we looked at the psalm and we talked about those those authorities. What happens when these powers are against you? This is very something very similar, very, very similar in thought. There are these foundations, and foundations are things, foundations are what things are built on. Foundations are vastly important, aren't they? A poor foundation means a poor edifice, a, fo- a poor building. If the foundation is poorly done, if there are corners cut, if, the, if, the, if it's not dug down to rock and solid ground, the foundations break, they give way, the building tilts and crumbles or possibly falls over, and many are injured and hurt. So the foundations are what makes things strong. These have given way, and now David's counselors are saying, look, In order to spare your life, you're God's chosen. You're the king of Israel. You need to flee. They'll overtake you. And and if we were to receive the counsel, I'll put myself in that situation. I think that's a pretty good case. That's a pretty good case. Should we heed that counsel? If David had heeded that counsel and fled... Would we judge him by that? Would we criticize him for that? We say, well, no, look, he had very three good reasons to leave. But yet in God's sovereignty and the inspiration of God's word, we have this psalm and David here sets forth what it looks like to trust in God even in perilous times or in times where escapism or retreatism is, seems like the right answer. Seems like the right answer. Seems like a good answer. I think by and large, Christians for generations, I'd say three or four generations now, has one of the reasons we find ourselves in such religious turmoil and such religious um, corruption is because of this religious escapism. God doesn't care about this world. God's not concerned about this world and the world's been turned over to the wicked and, and all we can do is basically suffer our way through this world because it's just going to get worse, worse, and worse, and worse. And that's, so there's this religious escapism, I say theological escapism that's taught called dispensationalism. And then you have classical amillennialism that does the same thing that basically says, oh, the world's going to get worse and worse and worse. There's really nothing we can do. We just bide our time. We compromise with it. And those are the people that we find ourselves mingling with. These are like the counselors, aren't they? They're telling us, find a compromise. Find a way to live with this compromise. Find a way to live with these broken foundations. Why? Because you can do nothing about it. 
Just give up. I mean, and, and that has proven to bear fruit that really has served no one well. Why is that? Well, because you need purpose. And what is your purpose? What is your purpose? Okay, your purpose is a woman, your purpose is a man. I'm not talking about that. We all have that to bear. Whether we're male or female, whether we're married or single, whatever the case may be, we have those to carry for sure. Those are duties and responsibilities that come with those things. But our, our ultimate purpose is what? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. That is in what decisions we heed or what, what counsel we heed to the decisions we make have to glorify God, have to take the context into consideration and, and do it in such a way that we have a clean conscience about it. That's where the enjoyment of God comes into. You can't enjoy God with a dirty conscience. We have to have purpose. And God has given us purpose. One of the ways, how do we glorify God? Well, we glorify God by what? Bringing this world into his dominion, bringing this world into subjection to his glory, bringing every facet of life into its proper context and sort of hallelujah chorus and making sure that everything that God created salutes him and praises him and, and all people give thanks to him. Our goal is to see the crown rights of Christ exalted and praised. All authority in heaven on earth has been given to whom? Jesus. For nothing? Uh -uh. So that the nations may be brought up under his dominion. And we're a part of that. We have to have purpose. Without purpose, we're aimless. Without purpose, we waste time. Without purpose, we, we, we feel empty. And when we feel empty, we become depressed. Why? Because you don't have purpose. And God made you to have purpose. They can be small, but they still have purpose. You may have, you know, uh, um, I mean, young people say, well, you know, I'm, I'm just a, a young person in a home, I'm, there's not a lot I can do. Well, sure you can do. You can make sure that you see the household as a happy place. Peaceful place. How do you do that? Being a help. Being respectful. Encouraging your parents. Parent or parents to what? Walk with the Lord. You're praying for them. You know what it does. I mean, how many young people come up to the parent and go, you know, mom and dad, I'm praying for you. I love you. You don't have to be perfect. But I'm praying that God will use you in a very special way in my life. I'm praying for that. And I'm praying he hold on to you. I know it's hard. I know you've been going through hard things. I'm praying for you. We work at, that's purpose. We get up, we do those things. And you don't have to do 10 a day. You can do two a day. You can do one a day, but you gotta have purpose. David is seeking to glorify the Lord. He is seeking to maintain his confidence and trust. And he's very careful about what he allows to diminish that trust. And we have to be careful of that too. And, and sometimes, even though good counsel comes to us from good 
intentions. It's still not good counsel. You can love the people that gave it to you, but you have to listen to the counsel. You don't just heed it because they love you. You have to listen to what they're asking you to do. So let's look at, uh, so we see that our confidence, our trust is in the Lord. It's not in the counselors. As well intended as they may have been to give David this counsel, his trust is not in them. Guess what? Good people make mistakes. Good people don't always give good advice. Okay? So let's look at these list of reasons that David gives in this psalm and why he doesn't heed their counsel. Let's see if we can make use of these ourselves. First of all, notice in verse 4. Notice how he sort of catalogs these attributes of God. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous, but the wicked and the one who loves violence his soul hates Upon the wicked, he rains rains coals, fire and brimstone and burning wind shall be the portion of their cup. Let's look at these. Well, notice David begins to give a firm affirmation. Not only does he put his trust in the Lord, but he tells us why he puts his trust in the Lord. First of all, notice because the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord in his holy house really is what it says, palace. What is this talking about? What does David mean when he talks about the Lord is in his holy place? Well, the Lord being in his holy place, being in his refuge or his stronghold is immovable. The Lord is immovable. He cannot be moved. He will not be moved. The Lord who is in charge is sitting in his fortress. Who is going to topple him? That is, notice verse 4, I mean verse 3. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Wait a minute, who lays the foundations? God does. God is the one who puts these foundations in place. And yet, what are the counselors saying? The sky is falling. The sky is falling. It's never going to be like it was. It's never going to be the same. It's the apocalypse. And David says, is not the Lord in his stronghold? Is not the Lord in his palace? Who's going to touch him? Who is going to go there and topple him? Who is going to push his palace over and take over his dominion? And of course, we know the answer to that. And we're going to give a historical reason for the answer. But yet, this is what he's saying. The Lord is in, he's in his refuge. He is in his stronghold. He is in his palace Who goes there to take him over? 
Who goes there to move him? He's immovable. He will not be moved. Secondly, he says the Lord's throne is in heaven. Certainly he's talking about his royal sovereignty. God is sovereign. God is exclusively sovereign. He's perfectly sovereign. He's completely sovereign. There is nothing outside of his providence, of his management. There is nothing that he created that can overtake him. Everything he created, whether seen or unseen, is under his dominion and under his power. Yes, Paul does say that Satan is a lion who roams around seeking whom he may devour. But the lion doesn't devour God. In fact, another um, text of Scripture important to this discussion, Ephesians 6. Ephesians 6. Verse 10, we talk about the whole armor of God. He says, Paul writes, he says, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Sounds like Psalm 11, doesn't it? Trust in the Lord. He says, put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God so that you would be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand, stand. Therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God praying always with all prayer, supplication in the spirit. Notice the shield of faith. No, David's trust is in God. His confidence is in God. He's put his faith in God and that faith acts as a shield to this terrible, to this bad counsel. It acts as a shield to this temptation. That is, listen, even though these are friends of David, they're not his enemies. They're his friends. But yet, Satan is firing darts at David to do what? Doubt the Lord. Distrust the Lord's providence and care. It goes something like this. Oh, the Lord is sovereign, but. The Lord is sovereign, but, but you know, um, you got to do what you got to do. It goes something like that. Now, David recognizes that, first of all, God is immovable. Secondly, that God is all sovereign. Now, you may think those two things don't matter, but they do. They do. The probably, they probably don't matter the as much as they should because we aren't as familiar with those doctrines as we should be. You say, well, 
what I'm really thinking about is my own life. I'm really worried about my own life. Why are you worried about your own life, beloved? Let me tell you. Your life, how can I put it? God's glory and majesty is worth a million of your lives. You understand? Do you understand what I'm saying? Your life. Why would you begrudge God calling you home? Come home, child. You don't want to see what's about to happen. Did he not remove Lot from Sodom before he destroyed it? You don't want to see this. You see, we look at things with unbiblical lenses. Oh, look at all the Christians that died. Look at all the Christians that were... The Lord called them home. The Lord took them home. He brought them into his sanctuary, to his stronghold, to his palace that's unmovable. And he goes, you don't want to see this, my child. Because I'm going to rain fire and brimstone down on these people. Welcome home. Our lives are not equal with God's glory and God's sovereignty and God's power. And I know we don't want to hear it. And I know they say, oh, pastor, this is why the Reformed church is so small. Maybe. (laughs) Okay. Fine. I'm okay with that. I'm not changing this doctrine. Why? Because it's biblical. This is truth. We need to conform to it. David, this is David's confidence. This is David's trust. David is not saying, oh, if I die, the Lord's lost the battle. No, David's not that important. The Lord is what's important. His glory is important. His truth is important. We are not that important. Now, it doesn't mean that God doesn't care for us. And it doesn't mean that God at times does not exercise great acts of providence to protect us. Because he does. But not all the time. Because if that's the case, then what we're going to do is going to say, oh, well, these Christians were saved and spared, so God loved them. Well, these must not have been Christians over here because they all died. God allowed them to perish, so they must either have been sinful or not Christians at all. See, that's the way we judge things. The point is both of them were very much loved by God. Some he called to himself, he called home. Others he protected in a way that bought him earthly glory. When the wicked see the the righteous perish, what do they do? They beat their chest and they say, we've won. And then God says, now comes the thunder. Now comes the thunder. Because God will not be mocked. Even in Nebuchadnezzar, you go back to the book of Habakkuk, make this note. Habakkuk was just, again, humanly shook because God was going to use Nebuchadnezzar to come in there and chasten Judah. And God gave Habakkuk some comfort. He said, don't worry, Habakkuk. I know he's arrogant. I know he's prideful. I know he hates you. 
and he hates me. And so when I'm finished using him, I'm going to punish him. You say, well, what are you saying? I'm saying God is sovereign. Why do you think the Puritan said all things are under the control of Almighty God? All things, the righteous and the wicked, the ants to the eagle, everything is under his dominion. Everything, as I think Thomas Watson may have put it this way, he said, everything is in the Lord's army. To be dispensed and used as he sees fit. If God wanted, I mean, if God wants to send a mama bear into a group of youth to punish them for their harassment of the prophet, Can he do it, beloved? I think you know the answer, don't you? If a God chooses for a jackass to speak, what will that jackass do? He will talk. That's what David is talking about. When he refers to God's sovereignty, David's leaving nothing nothing out. For the Lord's throne, his majesty, his authority, he's in heaven. Who's going to topple that? His eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. He sees everything. He knows everything. There's no ploy. Do you know whether it's the Illuminati, whether it's the uh, Secret Service or whatever club, uh, the Masons, whoever they are, whoever they are, as they meet in secret, God knows. He hears, he watches, he sees. Nothing escapes his vision. But you also have that group going, what can the righteous do, David is saying. Let me tell you why I will not heed this counsel. The Lord tests the righteous. And he does, doesn't he? It's part of his sovereignty, part of his majesty, part of his royal prerogative, if you will. Yes, the Lord has the prerogative, beloved, to test us to try us for our good. It's not for our demise. It's not for our destruction. God comes to test his children, as Hebrews 12 says, in order to train us up in righteousness. That's Hebrews 12. That out of love, he chastens us. He tests us. And the Lord tests the righteous, but the wicked and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. That's a strong verse. I mean, this verse right here causes many Christians to stutter. Why? Because so many Christians will say something like this. Wait a minute. God hates sin, not the sinner. But that's not what God's word says. Now, you may have a hard time accepting that, I, and you have to take that up with the Lord, not me. 
You have to go before the Lord in prayer and you have to lay out your thoughts to him and you're going to have to say, Lord, help me understand this. Lord, teach me these things, this, the depth of this revelation, this truth, that it's clear. What does it mean but the wicked one who loves violence? Now, notice why, who are the violent? Who are the violent in, the, in this verse? The wicked. You say, well, I know a lot of wicked people that aren't violent. No, you don't. Here's the point. If you are not supporting the foundation of righteousness, you're replacing it. Let me give you another propositional truth. Proverbs 8. Those who hate me love death. Let me give you another one. The mercy of the cruel, right? The tenderness of the cruel is violence. They are not tender people. You say, look around you, beloved, and notice how many abortions have we had in this nation over the past 30 years? And these are from compassionate people. These are from loving people, destroying their own offspring, destroying their own unborn children. That, beloved, the wicked are violent toward God. It may be secret. It may not be as open and bombastic and flagrant as others, but all the wicked are haters of God. And thus are haters of life. Now maybe you have to go before the Lord and reconcile yourself with that thought, but this is what I believe is faithful to the interpretation of what David is saying. You're either supporting the foundation of righteousness or you're tearing it down and destroying it. There's no neutral ground. There's no neutrality. In verse 6, he goes on, he says, listen, upon the wicked, he rains coals, fire and brimstone and burning wind shall be the portion of their cup. Do you think David had Sodom and Gomorrah in mind? It's possible, right? Because what happened there? What did God do to those cities, to that valley? He rained down judgment upon their perversity and their wickedness. So much so that that land today stands as a testimony to God's judgment. Nothing will grow there because of the sulfur in the ground. And you know what it was before that? Fertile, lush, gorgeous, green. I mean, profitable. And God destroyed it as a monument to his hatred to the wicked. And he delivered Lot. He brought Lot out of there, didn't he? 
David is saying, I can trust the Lord because I know what he's done in the past. I know his history. I know he hates wickedness. And I know the people that hate me and seek my life and the people that are seeking to topple these righteous foundations that God will not allow it to go on forever. There will come a time when God says enough and it'll be done and he'll rain down judgment upon them. I mean, Sodom and Gomorrah went destroyed overnight. They were wicked for generations. If you remember, what did he promise Abraham? He says, Abraham, I'm going to put your children, your descendants in bondage, and they're going to come out of Egypt, and they're going to go into the land of Canaan. That's just 400-something years before it ever happened. And he says, but not yet, because the sin of the Canaanites are not yet full. They were already sinful. And God was just allowing that sin to mature, 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 metastasize and infest her and it's become so infectious that it got to the point that God said, enough, now's the time, hellfire and brimstone. Does that give you confidence in your God? <laughs> it should. See, these aren't children's Bible stories, beloved. I'm sorry, they're not, they're not children's, David and Goliath is not a children's Bible story. Noah's Ark is not a children's Bible story. When the door shut on that ark, there was weeping and gnashing of teeth. There were screams of forgiveness. Not, not to be, repentance is too late. Let me in. I'm sorry. I believe now. Too late. Mothers holding their babies. Brothers and sisters, these are not children's stories. And we made them out to be. We've taken God's glory from them. These are horrific stories of God's judgment upon sinners that his soul hates. Sodom and Gomorrah the same way. That fire, I mean, have you ever been caught in the rain? Imagine getting caught in hellfire. I want you to think about it because this is what David, this is the imagery that David's given. Let me give you the reasons why I will not flee to my mountain, where I will not flee to my safe space. You ever been caught in rain? Imagine being caught in hellfire and the wind picks up. What does it say? Fire and brimstone and burning wind. You know what fire does when wind hits it? It gets bigger. as one that has a lot of experience in burning off land, I can assure you, you don't do it in high winds. I have pictures of 40, 50, 60 foot flames when the gusts of winds come up and it looks like it's the end of the world. Catching pine trees, 100 foot pine trees on fire and they exploding in the heat. 
this isn't a child's story. This is the testimony of Almighty God and Holy Scripture for generations to read of his sovereign power and judgment and hatred of sin, of those who would topple righteous foundations. In verse 7, I, I mean, no, notice, I mean, the end of verse 6, shall be the portion of their cup. That's their destiny. That's their destiny. That's their cup to drink. Why? Because they're at war with God. And do you think, beloved, listen to me, my brothers and sisters, do you think God is going to sit in heaven and ignore it? He cannot. Up until the time David wrote this, has God ignored the wicked the whole time? Has he ignored them? No. He has not. That's their cup. That's their destiny. In verse 7 is another reason that we should put our trust in him and be confident that he is watching over us and that he will judge not only judge the wicked that he sits in sovereign majesty, but this one is the one that gives us the most comfort for sure. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. His countenance beholds the upright. Verse 7 teaches you and me. It's just if God hates the wicked and he hates unrighteousness and he hates the wicked, God loves righteousness, he loves you. You see how they work together? You see how one is true and the other one is true. God hates wickedness. He hates the wicked. God loves righteousness. He, hates, he loves the righteous. God loves you, beloved. And God wants to protect you. God wants you to be protected. Now, maybe he will call you home. Whatever, again, in God's providence, whatever he chooses is best. But God is your refuge. God is your stronghold. God is your trust. And if we can't trust our God after these things and after he comes down to verse 11, God says, I love you. I love you. Does that not inspire righteousness? Does not it inspire confidence? Does it not inspire trust? Does that not inspire boldness when the world is going to hell in a handbasket? Doesn't this inspire what David is talking about? Now, we're, the Lord is my stronghold. The Lord is my safe place. The Lord is my safety. Why? Because he loves me. Now, let me say this, and now I'll close. If... One who sins habitually, I mean, life's full of sin. I'm just a sinner. I'm going to sin. I love sinning. Then they can have assurance God hates them. The reverse is true or the adverse is true. How do you know God loves you? Do righteousness. Do right. Love righteousness. Don't trust in your own perfection of that righteousness, but do it. Trust in Christ. 
Trust that Christ is the perfection of that righteousness. Yet I want to do right. I want to walk according to God's law. I want to walk according to God's word. I want to walk the paths of righteousness. God's glory is my meat and drink. I think it's life-changing. I I, I think it's such a timely word for the day in which we live as we watch. You know, beloved, this, this country hasn't walked with God in decades and decades and decades. What do we think should happen? The only reason we don't want God to continue his, his providential judgments is because it's uncomfortable to us. It hits our bank account. It's economically, you know, devastating in some degrees. And things are just not as good as they once were. And yet we have to ask ourselves, wait a minute, what's more important? God's glory? Or my convenience? Have we made convenience an idol? Is our convenience more important than God's glory? You know, beloved, listen, all of us, we probably can all say, well, yeah, kind of. But I think this psalm this afternoon ought to help us to get on our knees and say, you know what, Lord? It's either righteous foundations or it's not. Come and preserve them. And if you have to bring this judgment and it has to get fiery hot and blowing, burning wind, Lord, give me the grace to trust you in the midst of it. If you take me home, you take me home. If you leave me here, you surround me like you did in the fiery furnace with Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. Do as you please. Do as you please. As Paul says in Romans 12, living sacrifices. That's what we are, living sacrifices. So, beloved, I think in one thing, this psalm has not only challenged our, the depth of our trust. I know we trust the Lord, but the depth of it in very perilous situations. Yet it has challenged our object of our trust. Is it truly God in his glory or is it God in the, well, the blessings we have, the things we want, easy stuff? You'll have to take that up with the Lord. I don't know. I have to examine my own heart. But this psalm will stand as a monument to those Christians who are seeking to respond righteously when people around us respond in fear. Fear is not of faith. Fear is not of the Lord. Fear is of the devil. Our country knows this. These leaders know this, and they are manipulating us by fear. What can you do? Oh, me, what are you going to do? We're going to pray. We're going to worship. We're going to serve God. We're going to live by faith. And God's going to come in his good timing. He's going to reconcile all this stuff. Let's pray. And Father, give us repentance tonight or this afternoon as we listen, as we contemplate these things. Lord, we need time to meditate, time to reflect upon the challenges that we've been presented with in this psalm. And I ask, O Lord, that you would grant us all the required grace needed for us to examine ourselves and to repent, Lord, where we fall short 
of this instruction and of this, this responsibility and duty that we see David carrying out. Lord, and we know he sinned and he wasn't perfect, but Lord, that's not the question for us. The question for us is the psalm itself and how it challenges us. Lord, even those idols that we may even unknowingly set up in our lives. So Father, use this word, this eternal word in our lives to bring us closer to you to strengthen our trust, our confidence, and our hope, and to deepen, Lord, our testimony of your sovereign power and grace, your sovereign authority, Lord. You have always judged the wicked. The earth is full of your judgments. Our country, Lord, is under your judgment. Far too long, O Lord, we've rested in your blessings and we've denied you as the blesser. Come, O Lord, bring yourself glory in this place. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.